0: Romans chapter 1, and our verses are 2 through 4. And if you're there, or if you're not there, it's on the board, of course. Um, Let's please stand for the reading of God's Word. Which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we we covered verse 1 last week and we saw how Paul opened up his letter with identifying himself with specific facts real three real quick ones as he opens up this letter to the saints that were in rome to the point of he was so excited and could not wait to get there that he wrote this document this letter this this christian statement of faith that was greatly needed with the new body of believers that were in the city of rome the the sphere of influence on planet earth of its time and so he opens up by identifying some facts that Not only was he calling himself this, but he had the confidence in which he was identifying him with. And he opened up by explaining and introducing himself as being Paul, the writer of the letter. And he was a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He identified himself as a bondservant. He identified himself a called apostle. Not an apostle, not a self-appointed apostle, but one that was called by God. And, and we went into the detail with that. And then he goes with identify himself as being separated from the affairs of this world. And he was separated for a cause, and that was to bring the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. And we took our time with those identifiers and we saw how those three facts that Paul greatly believed within himself in the facts about himself and identified with these with these facts is that we can see and we can begin to understand why Paul was the driven pillar of an example to the Christian faith because of these primary areas that he identified them with. And we went over that with detail. And I hope that we we hold to that and apply that in our lives so we can become more and more like Christ. So we see Paul identifying himself with his three identifiers. And then we left off with Paul lastly identifying himself as being set apart. And he says, I'm being set apart for a purpose. And he says that purpose is for the good news of God. And this is where we pick up on our text with verse two and the context in which he continues to explain what this good that that the very thing that he was set aside for, which was the good news of God. And he mentions that this good news of God was good news that God had already proclaimed and promised us through the Holy Scriptures. He makes it a point for a reason. To say that this good news of God isn't new good news, but it's old good news that has been established not by himself, but through the Holy Scriptures. Here in verse 2, he words it like this, which he promised, meaning God, the good news of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now the highlight or the the meat of the text that we see here, the primary words, the key words that he's using to explain something here. He says, he's saying that the good news that he has is not something outside of what their forefathers had been declaring throughout redemptive history. This isn't something new. This isn't something outside what has already been established by Thus saith the Lord and co signed by the pillars of faith, the patriarchs, their forefathers have been saying throughout generation through generation. This good news that he's bringing to the saints, first of all in Rome and to the church in general, is good news that it's not news that in in a way where it's not good news of God to where the the redemptive plan of God has now changed to something else. It's the same good news. And understand, I'm taking the time to say that because to get it in its context, we got to understand there's a reason why Paul opens up this document, this letter to the church in Rome, the capital of influence in the world of its time, is because that the Judaizers had been heavily accusing Paul of bringing a different gospel or different news they were accusing him of speaking against the law of Moses they were accusing him of speaking against the temple rituals they were accu- Paul was even accused of being anti-semitic of being against the Jews because he was going against their Judaizer culture that they had so established within themselves And so he makes it a point. Listen, he says, I want to squash this right here, and right now, that I'm not bringing you a a new good news. I'm bringing you the good news that our forefathers had been waiting on and had been established and has now been completed before our very eyes. And they had have accused him. They have accused they were accusing Paul of spreading some revolutionary message that in no way or fashion was connected to their traditions of Judaism. And so he makes the ground clear. He, he makes the statement and clears the air to capture the attention first of all of the recipients of this letter. So he makes it a point as he opens up this marvelous letters we're going to see. To say that this good news of God that he brings is not new good news. But it's the same good news that has been declared, as he said, through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You have the recording for yourself. And he says, you have it. You've been been living by these scriptures. Well, this is the good news of God that I bring to you. It's not a different gospel. It's not a new gospel. It's the same gospel that God has established. And what we have here is the good news of the Old Testament promises concerning the, the New Testament gospel. Understand that and write that thought down because it's a key element. It's good news of the Old Testament promises that were given concerning the New Testament gospel. This is what he's going to wrap up in this letter as we're going to see in the next 16 chapters as he begins to unfold the meat of this letter, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, as we know, Paul was taught directly by Jesus for three years, and we're going to get into that as he begins to explain that. He was called by Christ and he was trained by Christ, just like the other 12 were. And Jesus faced some of the same situations that Paul was now facing by being accused of bringing something new that was totally against the grain of their traditions in Judaism and he was jesus christ himself was faced with concerning this good news that christ himself was bringing to the world as he walked this planet giving the good news of god himself and just as paul jesus himself did not identify with the pharisees and their their man-made devotions what he actually did he called it all hypocrisy and it burned them up because in their eyes this is what god has given us little did they know that they twisted what god had given them and they had made up their own own laws and their own rituals and their own devotionals and they were hypocrites in every which way or fashion of trying to follow those and christ called them out and this is why the the religious leaders in judaism at the time tried to say that christ is bringing a different gospel the pharisees had made a mockery out of the ceremonies that were given by God to their forefathers. They made a mess out of it. They made a mess out of God's law. There was ten commandments and the, the, the Jews ended up, the religious leader in Judaism ended up making thousands upon thousands of laws on top of that. They made a mess out of things. And here comes Christ trying to set the record straight and bring mankind back to true worship. And we see Paul reiterating that and backing that same teaching up to now writing to, this church, to the church in Rome, showing up and bringing the church back to the true worship what man attempted to, to destroy himself. And so we see that Jesus referred to these man-made rituals, to, these, to this man-made system of worship. He called them the traditions of men. These ain't God's traditions. These ain't, this is not even the traditions of your forefathers. This is the traditions of sinful man. And so the disciples of Jesus, as Jesus was teaching and bringing mankind back to true worship of the true God, the disciples of Jesus were constantly questioned by the religious leaders of their time about their non-participation in in the Judaizers' self-made traditions. The Judaizers were wondering, why don't your disciples do the things that we do? And they came to the conclusion was that they're doing something new. They're doing something outside of what was given to our forefathers in in, in redemptive history. They were constantly questioned in areas such as fasting. We see in Matthew chapter 9 verse 14. It says, then the disciples of John, which were talking about part of the Judaizers that were still running and, and, and doing their form of worship. It says... Then the disciples of John came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And then we see them questioning their practices in avoiding the man-made traditions that they made a mess of from their forefathers on matters concerning the Sabbath. They took the Sabbath, which was meant to be a blessing to mankind, and made it to be a chore to mankind. And they put rule after rule where it was literally impossible. And totally defeated the purpose of what God gave them the Sabbath for. We see them questioning their practices of the Sabbath in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Totally made a mess out of the blessing that God gave them of the day of rest. So by Christ teaching the true meaning of what the true meaning of these practices were intended to do. Naturally by default the religious people of the time. The ones that their eyes were blinded by their own attempt to become right with God in their own own efforts. Naturally, they thought that this was a new truth that Jesus and his disciples were bringing. It appeared to be something completely different to them that, that, they, that they had never been taught before. And it jogged them. And so instead of giving a listening ear, they threw it out and began to plot how they were going to put an end to this, to this madness that this man from Galilee was spreading. And we see that Jesus addressed the fact... That he did not come with something different than what the prophets had already been proclaiming. Jesus had to make the same, the same comment and the same statement that we see Paul making. Which he learned from Christ himself. And saw an opportunity to be like Christ and give the recipients of the letter the same description and the same defense in the good news of God that he was bringing. Just like Christ himself was bringing. Jesus says, I'm not. I'm bringing you the same truth that you live by, that you claim that you follow, that the prophets of old, the forefathers of the faith have been bringing to you and been verified through the Holy Scrolls. He said, rather, what I've come to do is to fulfill. I've come to fulfill that good news of God that you, mankind, have made a mess out of. I've came to fulfill that. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus made this statement. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is what they were accusing Paul of. This is what they were accusing Christ of. You're not know, following the grain. You're going against the grain. You're challenging us too much. You know what? I'm going to take, just like it is in churches today, we get offended and we take our little box, our little ball and go to another sandbox where the kids play together good. And the sand is just right. It's not hot like it is at Jefferson, you be at Jefferson Park and burning your feet in the hot summer day. It's, it's cool and, and it feels good. If you're, if you're in a place, praise God, we need to be encouraged. We need to be uplifted. And the word does that. Amen. But if we're not being challenged. If we're not being rubbed the wrong way. If you're not being threatened in our lifestyle. Then there may be something wrong. See don't think I've come to abolish the law. Or the prophets. I did not come to abolish it. But to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill what you're you're accusing me of going against. So the good news that Paul was bringing was the good news that had been proclaimed ever since the fall of man. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ did not start with the birth of the New Testament church. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of God, has been established all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This good news here of God, here that we see in Romans 1 1, it's what's known as an Illingillion, is the term and the word that we translate the good news of God. Illingillion. Illingillion means good news, gospel. The good news of the coming Messiah. Illingillion. This is what we call the gospel. If you were to do a random check and just randomly go through anyone that calls themselves that falls under the banner of a Christian and ask them what the gospel is, you would be surprised how uninformed that believers are concerning the gospel. You will hear a variety of answers. The most common answer that you would hear is love. The gospel is love. And yes, there's an element of love in the gospel story. Yes. But the gospel is something specific. The gospel is not that God is going to make your earthly life comfortable. The gospel is not that God is going to make this earthly vessel whole and healthy and never get sick and never hurt again on this planet. Yes, God heals. Yes, God wants us whole. Yes, God wants us to live an abundant life. Yes, but that is not the core of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God that God himself paid a substitutionary a, a substitu- price for man's condition of sin the good news is that none of us that have confessed Christ are going to get what we rightfully deserve the inland Gilead The good news of God. The gospel of the message of the coming Messiah. The redemption of mankind. The gospel. We first see this Gillian, the good news. We see it first as far back in human history as the garden and uh, the garden of Eden at the fall of man this is where the first gospel was preached let's go there Galatians chapter 3 and I'm going to read verses 14 and 15 in this portion of scripture God was already done creating and he created Adam and We know what happened with Adam. Adam fell. Adam failed. You know Christ has considered the second Adam. To come and fulfill what the first Adam couldn't complete. And we see Adam fall. And where we pick up on verse 14. God goes directly to the serpent. To curse the serpent. To curse Satan. For doing, for influencing Adam the way he did. Let's get Eve out of the picture. Adam tried to blame her, but it was, try to blame her just like man, you always try to blame, you're always trying to blame your wife in the marriage, and maybe we need to look at ourselves and see what we need to fix about ourselves. It was Adam's fault, it was Adam's responsibility. And Adam blew it. And in verse 14, God goes directly to Satan. And look what he says here in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast in the field. On your belly you would go and dust you will eat all the days of your life puts the curse on he puts the curse on the creature of the serpent and he's doing a duality of a curse which his focus is on Satan himself but he curses the means in which Satan used you'll have to go back and do some follow up to fully understand what that is but here we go verse 15 now he turns his attention to Adam he turns his attention to his creation his, his creation that he made in his own image. And he puts and he addresses Adam now. And this is where we see the ilingillion. Verse 15. He says to Satan and I will put in enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. Let me stop there. He's now, he's talking about what man is going to produce here. You'll have to read on to catch this. And he's telling the serpent that I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman. What does he mean here? There's going to be a hostile environment from this point on between you and the woman. He's talking about, as we see, the seed of the woman. This is one of the rare rare, uh, uh, spots in scriptural history where God refers to the, the woman as the seed because he's going somewhere here. I'm going to put hostility from this day forth between you and the woman. And he goes on to give some detail between your seed and her seed. There's going to be hostility, Satan. With your demons and your realm of influence, all, even those of mankind that heed to your influence, your seed that you're producing with your evil intentions, there's going to rise up a people that are going to be hostile towards you. And that hostile People are gonna come from the seed of the woman. I'm gonna raise a people that are gonna withstand the test of time all the way to the year 2022 in the little city of Bakersfield on the Loma here in the 93305. I'm gonna raise a people. that are not going to sit back and not kick up their feet and just allow you to rampage yourself through this current world. But they're going to make a stand and there's going to be hostility because these are people of another world and they do not answer to you. I'm going to put into me, me, I'm going to put hostility between your seed and her seed. He says this, he, meaning the seed of the woman, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, the word bruise is, your translation may say strike. And what the whole analogy that God is giving us through his word there is a picture of a level of severity that is speaking in humanistic terms where we can understand as humans, and it's as simple as this, as as we all probably know, a blow to the heel is nowhere near severe as a blow to the head. A blow to the head is fatal. A blow to the heel, yes, it's going to hurt. Yes, it's going to handicap you. Yes, you're going to limp a little, whatever the case may be, but it will not kill you. So what he's saying is the seed of the woman... It's going to crush you. And it's going to totally devastate and do away with you. And you're going to do some damage to that seed. But it's not going to be a devastating damage. It is here in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Embedded. Now this is the glory of it. And I wish we could continue on just with this. It is embedded right in the middle of the curse that was put upon Satan. Right in the middle of the curse for man's fall is where we immediately see the good news of the gospel, where it, begi- where it makes its entry into human history. The grace and the mercy of of God was on the sea right in the middle as He was given the curse of what, because of what had just taken place. And in the middle of that arises the mercy and grace of God. We could see right from the very beginning. Does it sound familiar? While we were yet still sinners and died for all of those that would repent and turn their faith to Him. Paul said, I'm bringing you good news from God. And it isn't good news. It's good news that has been established at the Garden of Eden upon the fall of man. We see here, in the book of Genesis, the gospel being launched out into redemptive history in the redemption of man. This term, if, you do some, if you're intrigued, if you can do a little follow-up. Verse 15, it's got a doctrinal term that we know Genesis 3.15 as. And it's known as the, the proto-evangelium. Meaning first proto, meaning first evangelium, evangelium, meaning gospel. So all it's saying is the first gospel. It's not something that was just made up. It's not something I'm I'm trying to make up. This has been known through theological history of being the proto-evangelium. The first good news of the gospel recorded in, in, in history. In the redemption of mankind. And so we know that this verse 15 is the first good news. And we know that the he that God is referring to is, is talking, the he that's going to crush Satan's head is a direct reference to Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That the promised seed is going to come, Satan, and he's going, to, he's going to squash this whole thing and do away with you. He's going to crush your head. He's going to give you a devastating blow that you will never recover from. And so understand this. In a lot of areas, Satan may have a hands up. Because, you know, Satan has always understood what this prophecy had meant. When God himself gave Satan in that garden this prophecy of the coming seed and the, the Satan bruising the heel of the promised seed and the, the promised seed crushing the very head of Satan himself, he understood perfectly clear what this prophecy had meant. And when we understand this, when we as believers understand the depthness of what's being said here in the Garden of Eden, it begins to clear up a lot of milky waters when it comes to redemptive history, when it comes to the historical facts that are recorded in the Holy Scriptures. This is why ever since that this decree was given in the the very beginning of creation, Every since that, that this decree God had given us to pronounce the salvation, the ultimate salvation of mankind. To clean up what Satan and Adam did there in the garden. Satan has been trying ever since that garden. He never did stop. Starting right there and then. He's never stopped trying to destroy the line that the, of the seed that the destroyer was going to come out of. He understood that the seed of Eve, that Adam and Eve, their, their descendants, that this, this head-crushing seed was going to come from. So he went into overdrive. And it was Satan's whole objective to kill the, the, the bloodline, to kill the descendants that started originally with Adam and Eve. We see this with the first death that was, that was given in, in the garden. He'd been trying. And this is what we see, church, throughout redemptive history in the Holy Scriptures. This this explains some of the... the stories that we see in the Bible. This explains the letters that are written, the books that were written. This explains what the prophets wrote and the story of the nation of Israel and the struggles that they had and the adversities that they had. This is all coming back from the, the, the first gospel, which was, which was the proclamation of God that God was going to raise up a seed. We see Satan trying every opportunity he had to kill that bloodline that that David was going to eventually come from, which the line of the tribe of Judah was going to arrive from, that the promised seed was going to be born out of. Satan was doing everything within his sphere of influence to stop that. This is why we see throughout history, when God called out His chosen people, this is why we see the persecution of God's chosen people. How everybody was, it was setting itself, influencing the world to try to stop that seed from coming forth. This is why we see Satan himself trying to taint the bloodline by infiltrating this with a gentile nation that was not part of the bloodline. And this is why we see God allowing murder. This is why we allow God. This is why we see God allowing man in his own evil intentions. To cause war and division. It was all caused to preserve this seed that God had promised that was going to come from His people. The seed that that was raised up to be in opposition to the works of Satan. This, saints, is what we have in the Holy Scriptures. We have redemptive history unfolding before our very eyes as we navigate through the Word. Every line, every chapter, every story. It's all tied into God preserving the promised seed and Satan trying to destroy it. This good news that Paul brings up is rightfully so has been promised throughout the Old Testament and has been promised throughout redemptive history. And he's telling these saints, he goes, all these scriptures that we study, all the old scrolls that we have, they all play a part in the fulfillment of this promised head-crushing seed known as the Messiah. The Holy Scriptures proclaim that the Messiah would come from the offspring of Abraham and would bless the nations of the earth. If you navigate through the Scriptures, I wrote a few of them down, so you can write them down and go through the Scripture yourself, keeping in mind that this is God making His promise for the the head-crushing seed to be born and to redeem mankind. Genesis 12, chapter 3, we see how this promise that it was going to come from Abraham and bless the nations of the earth. We see redemptive history in the recording of the scriptures as Paul was pointing to. We see that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem just as he actually was in Micah chapter chapter 5 verse 2. We see that this coming Messiah would be born of a a virgin birth. And we see that in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. We see in redemptive history, as Paul was pointing out, we see how this Messiah would have a throne of a kingdom that was going to come out of the household of David and that it would last forever. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. We see how this coming seed, this promised head-crushing seed of the woman would come and be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. We see this recorded in Isaiah 53, verse 5. We see how this must how this promised Messiah the seed of the woman would come and die among wicked men and be buried among wealthy men. We see this prophesied and told about in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9. We see how this Messiah would this Messiah this promised seed would be resurrected from the grave and his body will, would not see decay. We see this recorded in the book of Psalm chapter 16 verse 10. We see in recorded history as Paul was pointing out that this Messiah would be called the Son of Righteousness. Meaning that all that who refer to him as the rightful Savior and Lord that he is are awaiting his second coming as the sun rises up from the east. We see this in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. So these are just a few, but these are, the, these are verses and books that Paul is pointing them to. These are verses and books that Jesus himself tried to tell the Pharisees that he's not bringing anything new. This, if you understood it, if you weren't so blinded by your own traditions, you would see that I'm fulfilling exactly as the prophets wrote. Paul said the gospel of God is the gospel of God's Son. The good news of God is the good news of God's Son. Jesus Christ in all It foretold and fulfilled, all the prophecy it foretold and fulfilled about the coming Messiah Jesus Christ was fulfilled exactly as it was promised. And Paul's going to get into detail as we roll into the next 16 chapters. Jesus had told the Jewish leaders himself, as Paul was having to do, that the very scriptures that they had devoted their entire livelihood to, that they were reading every single day and devoted to, they all pointed to him. Little did they know these scriptures that they so much studied and dove into and devoted their lives to. They were so blinded they could not even see that everything that they gave their life to was pointing to Christ, and Christ was standing right before them. He said in John chapter five verse thirty nine, "You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. In these that in it is these that testify about me." You are so blinded by your traditions, you can't even see that all these scriptures point to me. You got to understand this. Every Now, it's hard to grasp, but you take every verse in, into, it, in, into its context. You know, the, the whole of scripture, it all points to Christ. It all points a part of redemptive history that points to Christ. All of it does. You, do, you, try, to, you try to prove it wrong. It all ties in with redemptive history. And we know that at the end of the day, redemptive history points to Christ. And Jesus is saying, all these scriptures you study, they all point to me. Paul moves on to summarize something. The heart of what the Old Testament scriptures concerning the good news of God and how they have been set aside to deliver. He summarizes this, as we told you last week, that the whole letter can be concise from verses from, from verses one through six. He he gives he gives the saints the, the fullness of the letter and then begins to unfold it as he moves on in the chapters. While here in verses three and four, he gives it a, a, a concise version of, of the good news of God that God has come to deliver his people. So he goes on. Let's let's read verses three and four of Romans chapter one. Verse 3, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, the scripture references that we went through, he's tying all this up. Redemptive recorded history of the Old Testament scrolls. He's tying it up in these two verses and he's giving the facts of what these what all of the Old Testament scrolls are pointing to. The good news of God is that God has fulfilled his promises that he's given in the scriptures. He God has fulfilled it. The pro- we are living in a time we believe it was Peter that covered this. You know the angels longed for the time that we are in today. They saw the scripture. They heard the scripture. Scripture even tells us itself. That holy men that were inspired to give these thoughts. And to record them down on paper. They did not at times fully understand what they were, what they were writing. They didn't fully understand what God had given them. And even then themselves scripture tells us. They even peered back into their own writing, trying to get the depthness of what God had told them. And the Bible says that angels themselves longed for such a time. They looked down and longed. They envied the believer, if I can say it like that. How God would love a people so much that were so wicked and are so bad and so evil at their core that he would pay the sacrifice himself. They long for the time that we are in. We are in a time hindsight looking back to see the fulfillment of the promise that the forefathers, the patriarchs of the faith lived their lives Died for, they put their life on the line for this gospel, and we have hindsight looking back and see the completion. We can see the totality of Scripture and the fulfillment of Scripture that was fulfilled to the T. We have that privilege and honor looking back and being recipients of that redemptive history the good news of god that paul that paul is pointing to here is the good news of redemption of god and not only that what he's trying to tell them god has already completed it The good news of God has been fulfilled just as he has promised. Children of God, saints in Rome, what we've been waiting for for all these years that was given to mankind in the garden has now been fulfilled in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God came down to earth and clothed himself in human flesh. By becoming a man born of a virgin that he may be the sympathetic high priest that prophecy told us about. He wrapped himself in perfect humanness to rescue us from our sinful state that we were in. Christ was at all points tempted like you and me. This is what he's telling the saints in this statement that he made. He was tempted just like us, clothed in a human in a human garment. But yet was without sin so he can bear the brunt of the wrath of God himself that was upon us all. He was the perfect sacrifice from the promised seed that was given in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Now the question is Why do we think we're good? Why do bad things happen to good people? First, whoever said you were good. I made a statement last time and it's a scriptural doctrinal truth. We are declared righteous. Understand that and I hope you wrote it down and I hope you're going to do some homework. At this point in our lives, in this flesh suit, we are declared righteous. By putting our faith in Christ. Now that is different from being righteous. We are not righteous. We are evil. We're we're sinful men. We're sinful creatures. But yet we're declared righteous. That's the the awesomeness of the grace and love of Christ. Listen, don't ever get too high high on the pedestal there, thinking that we're all this and that. We've got to get things figured out. We've got to understand and come down to reality that we are still sinful creatures, unworthy of any good gift from God. We are unworthy of the gift of salvation. It's only by the grace and sovereignty of God that God within His own free will has given it to us. Bottom line now is we have a hard time with that. Because, oh, we've we got to have a life, Lord, i got to do something. i gotta, I got to prove I'm good somehow. After all, I sacrifice. I, I've given up that. I've given up this. I, I come to church all the time. I give. I work. Have you? You're mm-hmm. oh, so good. You don't need. You don't need faith in Christ. Just do your good works. That's the beauty of the good news. That while even now, while we're still sinners, we're declared righteous before our Lord. And to the point of God's going to preserve us, God's going to see us through all the way to the end. That day of consummation, when it's all said and done, we're going to be made fully righteous before Him. But until then, we're, we're declared righteous. God came and fulfilled the perfect sacrifice something that we could never do for ourselves, satisfying the wrath of God that was upon you. The, the question isn't whether, why did God choose us or save us, or why, you know, why this and that, that. I miss said that. The question is why God even chose us. I didn't deserve it. You didn't deserve it. But yet God's love is there, God's mercy is there. He was the perfect sacrifice from the promised seed. Verse 4 adds this. Romans 1, 4. Who was declared the Son of God with power. This Christ Jesus, this promised seed, who was declared the Son of God with power. How was this power displayed? He continues on with verse 4. By the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. Now, the spirit of holiness is just... We see this in scripture. It's just another way of, the, of where we see the Holy Scriptures referring to the Holy Spirit. So it's saying that, what he's saying is, who Jesus Christ, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of God, is, what, is how you can paraphrase that, that verse there. Now listen, this is an important fact here. This is a, a practical, logical fact. If there was ever any question in someone's mind, we need to remember this for those that are coming to faith. If there was ever any question in anyone's mind about on whether or not Jesus was truly the son of God. If this is just all a myth, if he was just a good man. If he somehow was in a coma or whatever, if there was ever any question of Jesus the Messiah born, of, uh, born in Be- from Bethlehem and was, was crucified on Calvary, which is a, a fact that we covered already, a recorded historical fact even outside of the Holy Scriptures, a recorded documented fact of history. If there was ever ever any question on whether he truly was the son of God, God himself, the grave would have ended it all. Just as it did for all other false gods and prophets in recorded history. Their end was the grave. That would have finished it. That would have squashed it. It would have ended right there. Was the grave. What we see in recorded history, what we see in redemptive history, is that the Messiah had to come as a man to be our substitute. Yes, he was a man, but he also had to be God in order to redeem us. So Paul is saying that in the way that Christ manifested, And validating His completed work in being the Son of God Himself. And being the only pure and undefiled substitute for our sins. He verified this. He manifested this through His resurrection. Now we got to understand something here. Acts chapter 17 verses 24 through 25. Acts seventeen twenty four. the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temple made of hands, nor is served by human hands as though he needed something since he himself gives all people life and breath in all things. God is the only one that sustains life itself. We know that God, Jesus Christ, being part of the Trinitarian Godhead Himself, all things are held together by Him Himself. All life is held together by Him Himself. It is God and God alone who is the giver and the taker of life. No one else. So since we know that, and since I heard an amen on God being the sole sovereign ruler over life itself. Since he's the very one that holds the power of life and death in his hands. If Jesus Christ of Nazareth was not the promised seed from the father. The promised savior of the world. Do you think can you even begin to fathom that God would have raised him from the dead by some mistake. Do you think it would even been possible for this man, as scripture says, to raise himself from the dead? Only God can raise the dead. Only God has the power over life and death. it is impossible and just as scripture says when christ re- resurrected from the dead it wasn't only his disciples at one time there was over 500 eyewitnesses that saw the risen christ it is recorded in in history of mankind of christ Rising from the dead. That is verification. And validation. And completion. Of God himself. Coming to earth as a man. And dying for our sins. And God himself. Raising back to life again. To redeem us from the penalty of our sin. Jesus Christ. The promised Messiah. The promised seed. We are so spoiled. We come to saving faith already with that promise. You see the patriarchs of old. They lived hundreds of years anticipating the coming of the Messiah. These uh, patriarchs of old gave their life. For this very promise of the head crushing seed of the Messiah that would come from the woman. It was Christ Jesus that came into the world to redeem us from the wrath of God. I'm telling you, church, the wrath of God was upon us all in a way and in a weight that Paul is going to dive into. And how heavy that was and how impossible it was for us. We were all doomed and headed for the fiery pits of hell. He ends his... Verse 4 with Jesus Christ our Lord. We get so nonchalant about Jesus Christ our Lord. We say it all the time, it's a mantra. But what Paul is doing here, he's using all the names that declare all who this promised seed is Christ Jesus. He's using all the names here in that one little statement Jesus Christ our Lord. First, Jesus meaning Savior. That's what Jesus means. He's saying our Savior. Then, Christ, the anointed one, anointed of God the Father and then he says Lord which is a sovereign ruler so he's saying Jesus Christ our promised seed the one that God had promised Jesus Christ our anointed sovereign Lord and Savior what a marvelous wonder of the incredible majesty of the person of Jesus Christ saints Jesus Christ who is the good news of God for mankind let's pray